All right, well, we are back in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. I know it's been a while since we've been in the book of Mark. We took a break as we went through our Advent series, but now we are back in Mark 7. And I fairly confidently can say I believe we will finish the book of Mark in 2019. Uh, we, are, we are getting through. I believe that we will. I won't say at what point in 2019 we'll finish, but we are, we are getting there. So Mark chapter 7 is where we're picking up. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you a, a story uh, back to before Britt and I had kids, okay? So this was before kids, you know, back when, yeah, for those of you who had kids, you know, it's that time where you felt like life was hard, but now you look back and you're like, life was really, what was going on? Like, it wasn't that hard, right? But before we had kids, we were thinking about getting a dog, okay? I grew up with a dog. I love dogs. Everyone loves dogs, pretty much. I know there's a few exceptions, but everyone loves dogs. We were thinking about getting a dog, but before we got a dog, we had an opportunity to, uh, where my sister needed someone to dog sit their dog, okay? And we thought, well, hey, maybe before we buy a dog, uh, we will, you know, dog sit Betsy's dog, and, and then we'll be ready to make the commitment. Uh, some of you are thinking, I didn't know Grant and Britt had a dog. Well, we don't. Just keep listening, okay, because we decided to dog sit first, okay? And, and so uh, uh, so we, we, we said, yes, we'll dog sit your dog, and, and um, he was a little dog, a little cute dog. It was a, a Shih Tzu Poodle mix, um, and his name was Dude, okay, which is just one of the most incredible names for a dog that you could have. I, I give them uh, mad props with that. His name was Dude. And so Dude shows up to our house, and he's not our dog, but we have graciously opened our home to him. And my sister brings him over, and, and he walks in the door, and I should say he, he kind of struts in the door. I perceived he was strutting. Some people said he was walking. I thought he was strutting. And he just kind of had this arrogance about him, like, you know, looking around, thinking, okay, you know, this will do. Like, you know, this will be all right, right? Like, I, I kind of perceived he had this sense of entitlement. Like, all of a sudden now, this was his house, right? This was his domain. And he quickly then claimed the house uh, for himself, which do you guys know how dogs claim something, uh, right? So he, he, and we thought in our old house, it was the whole downstairs was tile. And so we thought, hey, this is great. If he has an accident, it's all tile, like no big deal. But what does he do? He struts into our house and he makes a, like a V-line right, right to the stairs, right upstairs to the carpet. And right in the middle of the carpet, he claims it as his home and relieves himself, okay? Um, and so all you could say was, all you could say was, dude, <laughs> right? Dude, come on, man. Like, and maybe, maybe we like change our mind about this whole dog sitting thing. Like, you know, I, I yell down to Britt, you know, grab Betsy. Of course, she's like screeching out of the driveway, peeling out of the neighborhood, right? She's gone. Okay. So dude is there with us. Uh, and, and in case you're wondering my relationship with my sister, Betsy, it's, it's all good. Uh, we're, we're still friends and everything. Uh, but I, I know dude is a dog, but I felt like he came into my house and started acting like he owned the place. He had this sense of an entitlement, right? He would decide when it was time to go outside, and I had to serve him when he beckoned, when he wanted to go outside. And we didn't have a fenced-in yard, and it was in the middle of winter, so we would have to take him out on a leash, kind of in the sleeting rain, and I would try to walk him long enough so that he would go to the bathroom outside. 
But all he would do is just look at me and be like, man, it's too cold out here. I'm not going out here. So we would walk around a little bit. We'd get back into the house. He would run straight upstairs, and it would happen again. He had decided that he was going to call the shots, right? That he had the right to go to the bathroom anywhere he wanted. He was going to decide when it was time to eat. He was going to decide when it was time to go outside, okay? And listen, the reason I share that with you, it's going to make sense a little bit later on at the end of the message, but the reason I share that is because, and listen, I realize he's a dog, okay? But for the sake of the illustration, his, his whole approach to staying at our house, I perceived he had this sense of entitlement. He acted like he had the right to do anything he wanted. He acted like he had the right to eat or do this or that when and wherever he wanted he acted like he had the right to decide when it was time to go outside and when it was time to go inside. And because of his approach, because of his approach, our relationship did not go very well, right? Like we, we, the relationship between me and dude, it was not very good because of how I perceived he was approaching that relationship. And many of us, listen, many of us do not approach God as we should. And therefore, our relationship with God does not go very well. Or at the very least, we miss out on enjoying the fullness of the goodness and the graciousness of God when we don't approach him as we should. We miss out. We miss out on the depth and the fullness and the beauty of his goodness and graciousness when we don't approach him like we should. You see, many of us, we approach God with a sense of entitlement, right? Like, God, God, I have the right to do this or that when I want. I have the right to decide when I'm going to do this and when I'm not going to do that. I have the right to decide what is going to make me happy and who is going to make me happy. God, I'm going to go here or there. You can come behind me and clean up my mess, but I'm going to go and do this or that, right? That's how many of us, we often approach God. We don't approach him as we should. And so in our passage this morning, we have much to learn, okay, about the goodness and the graciousness that God showers us with, and we have much to learn about how we are to approach him, okay, how we are to approach him. Um, let's look now at Mark 7, verse 24, Mark 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Okay, I know it's been a little while since we've been in the book of Mark, uh, but just think back to November or just look in your Bible a few verses before. Uh, Jesus had just been confronting the Pharisees and the scribes about what really defiles a person. Their thinking was that it was things on the outside, like what you ate or who you, were, you hung out with or what diseases you were around, that it was those things that made someone unclean before God. But Jesus was trying to say, no, 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 our sin, it comes from within us. It's from what comes out out of a heart that defiles a person. And so he's just gotten through that, just gotten through the argument confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes, and now he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was a region that the Jews did not think very highly of in that time, okay? Tyre was, was 20 miles northwest of Capernaum, and Sidon was even farther north, and they were both along the Mediterranean Sea, what is now modern-day Lebanon, okay? 
And now this is interesting where he goes because this is the only time that is recorded in his public ministry that Jesus goes outside the boundaries of Israel, okay? He's traveling, this, this passage, this story is taking place outside of the boundaries of Israel. He crossed the border, right? It's probably too soon for border jokes, so we won't go there. It's just too touchy at this time, but I hope to live in a country that someday pastors can make a border joke. Okay, uh, but Jesus, Jesus right, he's, he's gone outside of, of, of the nation of Israel. He's now in this pagan land that the Jews did not think very highly of, and he goes there to, to find some rest. But what does our, our verse say? It says he could not be hidden. He could not be hidden. The lights of the world could not be hidden. Even in the darkest of lands or even in the darkest of situations or even on the darkest of days, isn't it good that the light of the world cannot be hidden? Look at verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus could not be hidden, and he enters into a house, and a woman who's not Jewish, she's from Syrian and Phoenician cultures, and, and according to typical Jewish customs, she has no right to approach a Jewish rabbi like Jesus, okay? According to those ancient Jewish customs, she's got everything going against her that says she should not be hanging out with Jesus. She's got no right. Like first, first she's a Gentile, right? So she's not Jewish. She's outside of the nation of Israel. She's from a pagan land that they looked down upon. She's a woman, which Jesus never looked down upon women, but some in that culture did. She's a Gentile, right? She's, so we already said she's a Gentile. She's from a pagan land. She's a woman. And, and her daughter is possessed by a demon. That's four strikes against her that says she does not have the right to approach Jesus. I mean, even Levi, who was a tax collector, and everyone hated tax collectors, he was probably feeling uncomfortable. Like, if anyone sees me hanging out with this kind of riffraff, like, I can't be associated with this, right? It was, it was that. She just had no right to be there. This was very unacceptable in that time and that culture for this woman to approach Jesus like she did. But listen, you have to understand that, okay? You have to understand she did not have the right to approach Jesus. You have to understand that her status was literally, it was nothing. But listen, her need was great. And what we're going to see with, with Jesus is that he does not care necessarily about the status of a person, but about their need. And so while her status is nothing, her need is great. Her need is great. Now, look, look how she approaches Jesus. She comes and she falls down at his feet and she begs. She begs. Now, that, that word beg, uh, what it really means here in the, in the original language is that she was persistently begging. She persisted in her begging. 
okay? She was almost annoyingly begging. She was not stopping. She was persistent in it. And so she, she falls at his feet, which, which falling at someone's feet, I mean, that's showing great humility, right? It's showing great respect for him. And then she pleads with him in a way that shows that he is her only and last hope for her daughter, Right? I mean, someone who approaches Jesus like this typically does not have a backup plan, okay? If you approach Jesus falling at his feet, persistently begging, it's not like you're approaching Jesus, well, if this Jesus thing doesn't work, I've got this, this, and this, we can try and we'll see, you know, I've got this, you know, we'll we'll try this, we'll try yoga class, we'll go over here, you know, we've got some options here. No, she is falling at his feet and begging and pleading and persisting that Jesus, you are my only and last hope for my daughter. Notice notice some things in how she approaches Jesus. Notice that there's no pride there, right? There's no pride there. There's no sense of entitlement. There's no care for how she appears to the others, right? She's not caring how she's appearing to the disciples. She doesn't care about that. She is a desperate, pleading mother whose child is sick. Tim Keller has has said this about parents. He says, there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save them. Right? Parents understand this. Even the most cowardly of a parent, right, when their child is sick or in danger, there's nothing that would stand in the way of of stepping up and having a boldness of courage to do whatever you had to do to help or save your child. There's no worry about your reputation when your child is sick or in danger. There's, there's no, I'm too proud to ask for help when your child's sick or in danger, right? You might be too proud to ask people to help you, but if your child is sick or in danger, you're, you're not too proud to ask someone else to help. And so picture this setting and this scenario. This is a desperate mother whose child is sick and she's pleading and begging at the feet of Jesus, knowing that he is her only hope. He is her only hope to to redeem and rescue her daughter from this oppression of evil. And if I could make a, a quick application point for us parents. Parents, let me ask you this question. Parents, are we persistently pleading with Jesus on behalf of our kids? Like, do we really understand that he is the only hope for our kids? Do we persist in pleading? I've, I've found it interesting as you, as you read Christian biographies, I, I think what you'll find and what I've found is that many of our brothers and sisters who we'd say have gone on to live faithful, fruitful lives, what has been happening in their life behind the scene, many of them have a faithful mother who just persisted in praying and pleading that God would save their, her child. We see this over and over, but are we persistently pleading for our kids? 
I know many of us desire that. Many of us want that. But what's your plan for that? What's your plan in 2019 to persistently plead with Jesus on behalf of your kids? I've heard it said that, that a goal or a desire without a plan is merely a wish. And I want more for us than just to wish that we pleaded for our kids. So what is your plan? Are we persistently pleading and begging Jesus on behalf of our kids? She was pleading so much that Matthew's account of this story, it says the disciples begged Jesus to send her away. Like the disciples were looking for a little rest and retreat, and here's this persistent mother begging and pleading, and they have advised Jesus in Matthew's account to send her away. Like, Jesus, send her away. Can you imagine? Send her away. How could they respond like that to this desperate mother? But you see, the disciples just like many of the Jews in that time, just like Jonah in the Old Testament, they could not imagine that God would extend salvation beyond the nation of Israel. They couldn't see it, right? They couldn't see it. They couldn't fathom the greatness and goodness of a Messiah, of a Christ, that would not just be for one nation, but would be for the nations, For the nations, they couldn't picture or they didn't remember that God had promised their father Abraham that one of their offspring, that through them all of the nations of the world would be blessed. But you see, here's a beautiful thing we start to see in this story. We are starting to see in this story, in Mark chapter 7, we are starting to see that the rescuer, the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah was not just for one nation, but for the nations, the nations, right? And all the non-Jewish people in the building said, amen, right? That's all, right? And look, look how Jesus responds to this desperate plea in verse 27. <clears throat> and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, at first, this is a little confusing, right? Because it seems like Jesus is insulting her. And that doesn't seem very consistent with what we know of his character. And so we've got to kind of dig into this, okay? Because even in that culture, calling someone a dog was not, it was not an endearing term. It wasn't like, you know, uh, that guy's Seth, he's my dog, right? It wasn't like that, right? That's an endearing term, uh, but, but that's not what that culture really thought of dogs very well, right? In general, in that culture, if you got called a dog, it was a term of reproach. It was a, a put-down. The Jewish people often called the Gentiles or non-Jewish people or pagan or who worshipped other uh, gods and religions, they called them dogs, Okay? And listen, it was not endearing because most dogs in that time were wild dogs. They were uh, scavengers that roamed the streets. They ate dead and rotting animals. They, date, you know, they ate unclean things. They, you know, they, were just, they were wild scavengers. They didn't have the, the wisdom of a Bob Barker telling them to have their pet spayed or neutered, right? That was a, yeah, that was a joke. That was a, that was a joke. I'll tell you. I realize if I had to tell you it's a joke, it's not that funny of a joke, but we're going to try, okay? Uh, 
But they had just wild dogs and scavengers just roaming the streets. They were everywhere. And so to call someone a dog, it was not an endearing term. And so the question is, is Jesus insulting her here, right? Is this a put down? And I believe the the correct interpretation of this text that says, no, he is not insulting her. What he's doing is he's answering her plea with a parable, okay? He's answering her plea with a parable. The point is not for him to call her a dog. He's trying to teach her through a parable. And so Jesus often spoke in parables. One of the best, my favorite uh, definitions for a parable is that a parable is an earthly story that is teaching a heavenly truth, okay? A parable is an earthly story teaching a heavenly truth. Jesus many times spoke in parables or stories to try to connect with with a deeper truth that he was trying to communicate. So he's trying to teach her something in his response. He's trying to communicate to her a truth, but he's using a parable so that it can be taught in a relatable way so that she can understand this, okay? And so he uses the parable. And then even in the parable, the word that, the Jesus, that Jesus uses for dog, it's not necessarily the term that was used as the put down or the wild dog phrase, but the word actually means little dog or puppy, okay? So even in the parable, the term dog, he was really saying puppy. He was describing kind of the house pet. He wasn't talking about the wild scavenger dogs that roam the streets. And so what he's trying to do, he's trying to explain to her, okay, through a parable, hey, you know how you sit down to eat and you feed your children at the table first and then the puppies or the house pets, right, they get to eat the stuff that falls on the ground, right? You guys can relate to this. Those of you who have pets or have you ever been to someone else's house that has a pet, right? You know, you, you, it, 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 you feed the kids, right? And then some scraps fall on the ground and the house pet usually comes and cleans it up. There's an order there, okay? There's an order. The kids, the table first, and then the dog. So you guys... I know you guys can envision this. Anytime we go over to someone's house for dinner, uh, if they have a dog and they see Jordy, our two-year-old, walk in, I mean, that dog's like, all right, tonight is the night and that is my guy, right? Like wherever this guy's sitting, I'm going to be by him, okay? So everyone, yeah, their dogs, they love to sit, you know, be by Jordy. Why? Because they know that is where most scraps of food are going to end up, right, on the floor. It's going to be like Thanksgiving for that dog, okay? So that's the, he's trying to teach her. There's an order in this, right? The kids first, and then the dogs get the scraps. But listen, he is not attempting to insult her here, okay? He's trying to teach her that there is an order to his mission. There's an order to his mission. He has come first to minister to the nation of Israel first, but then his disciples are going to be sent out and commissioned to the nations, okay? But there's an order here. There's an order. There's an order in his mission. His mission was to primarily teach the the Jews, but he knew in the future that he was going to commission his disciples, the ones he was teaching, to go out and take this news to the nations and to the ends of the earth. And so he's not insulting her. He's not even excluding her. He's saying there is just an order in how I'm going to accomplish my mission and my ministry here on earth and to reach the nations. Because listen, we know, we know that Paul will write in Romans, like in Romans 1, uh, 16. 
a well-known verse that says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then Paul goes on in the book of Galatians in chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In this story, and in this interaction with Jesus, we start to see the truth that's going to be fully realized and revealed with some of Paul's letters and missionary journeys, and Peter's going to get a vision, right, that Jesus did not just come for one nation, but for nations, plural. And all who are in Christ are now adopted into Abraham's offspring. But, but look at her response, okay? Because even though the disciples didn't get it, she does. She gets the parable. And this is such a big deal because this is the first person in the gospel of Mark that Jesus has told a parable to, and she gets it. She gets it. Like most of the time, it's just, you know, it's sailing over people's heads or they have to ask him to explain, you know, after the fact, hey, can you kind of break that down, explain that? But he speaks to her in a parable and she gets it and she responds from within the parable, okay? So this is a monumental passage. I know it can sometimes seem a little obscure and strange to us, but this is a big deal. She's interacting with Jesus at a new level that people haven't really heard these words and, and actually entered into the parable themselves, okay? All right, so she hears the parable, she gets it, she responds back. Look at verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In Matthew's account, you know, Jesus essentially says, you have a mega faith. Like, look at the faith of this woman. You have a mega faith. She understood the parable. She responded to it by placing herself in it. And listen, she's not, she's not offended by the dog comment, okay? I think she understood the parable. She understood the point of him trying to teach her this. She understands that she is a, a Gentile, and she does not have a right to him right? She cannot claim Abraham as her father. She has no claim. She has no right to him. And it is because of this, it is because of her humility and her lack of pride that she can, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, she can actually approach Jesus the way she should, and she can enjoy and experience Jesus like no one else has up until this point in the book of Mark. She's essentially saying, Lord, I have no right to be at your table. But I believe that just one crumb would satisfy me. Right? She's saying, I believe that just some, just some scraps from your table, that you are that good, that you are that gracious, that you are that powerful, that even just some scraps from your table, I believe my daughter would be healed. I believe that that would be more than enough. I know I have no right or claim to be at your table, but just give me a crumb and that would be more than enough for me. 
Listen, you want to know how you should approach God. Look at this woman's example. She's first, she's persistent, right? We've talked about that. She's persistent. She's also, she's humble. She's humble. She doesn't deny her unworthiness. She's not offended by Jesus speaking truth about her condition. She owns that. She, she's humbly, hey, I know I do not have a right to be at your table, but look at her posture of humility. She's ultimately begging and pleading, but she's not saying, give me what I deserve because of my goodness. No, she's not walking in with a sense of entitlement and pride like the Pharisees and scribes did. Hey, God, give me what I deserve because of my goodness. That's not her approach at all. Her approach, she's saying, give me what I don't deserve because of your goodness. That is how we approach the Lord. Give us what we don't deserve because of your goodness. And Jesus responds, and he heals her daughter. He redeems her from this oppression of evil that she was under. So this woman, she's persistent. She's humble. But what else is she? She is confident in the surplus of the goodness of Jesus. She believes that the table of Jesus will be more than enough. There will be more than enough to feed and satisfy the nation of Israel and the nations of the world. Because, listen, we, we've talked, right, how people have, have in error approached God with this prideful, entitled way, right? And we, we should instead approach in humility, right? People can have this pride when they approach God. But then you have people on the other side of the spectrum. They don't approach God at all. They aren't self-righteous. They aren't prideful. No, they don't approach him at all because of their shame. They feel shameful. I can't even approach the Lord. When we're talking about being humble before the Lord, we're not talking about living in shame like, like I, 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 there's no way that I can approach God because of my sin. And people, they hide from God. They have no confidence in the goodness or the grace of God. People that live in shame, they often try to hide their real selves from God. Right? They try to hide their real selves from others because they believe if someone really knew me, if God really knew me, or if the church really knew me, they would not love me. If you have thought that, if you have lived that way, you've lived wrongly in shame that you don't need to live in. And listen, people that live in shame, we then become paralyzed by our inadequacies. We see all these inadequacies in ourselves and we just let them paralyze us. Listen, church, God's word speaks to both the proud, self-righteous person and it speaks to the person living in shame. And this, this woman, she was humble in understanding that she did not deserve or have a right to anything from Jesus, but she was also confident in the goodness and the grace of God. She was confident in what the theologian A.W. Pink once said. He said that what God's holiness has required, his grace has provided. She was confident in that. Hebrews 4, verse 13 and 16, it says this. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, the gospel leaves no room at the table of Jesus for pride or for shame. Church, Jesus has looked upon the nations, and although we, right, that's us, the nations, right, although we have no claim on him, right, we have no claim on him, apart from Christ, we are not in the line of Abraham. We are in the line of Adam. Our family tree consists of men and women who generation after generation have rebelled against God and who rightly deserve to be cut off from his presence. We have no claim on the Messiah. We, we, we can't be entitled and act like he owes us something. But here's the good news, okay? Here's the good news. The one that we had no claim on has claimed us. That's the good news of the gospel. We had no right. It wasn't owed to us. We had no claim on the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. But the one that we had no claim on has claimed us. And I'll, I'll close with this, thinking back to my sister's dog, uh, Dude, which I know it's a little silly, but stick with me, all right? But what, I mean, seriously, what right did he have? I know you can tell I'm still like working through some issues with this, so this is part of my healing process, all right? Uh, uh, but, you know, what right did he have to come into my house, right, and just go to the bathroom wherever he wanted? Like, what, what right did he have to all of a sudden control my schedule about when I went outside or when I walked in the snow? Like, all these things. What right did he have to control and, and for me to just have to walk behind him and kind of clean up his mess? But many of us, though, we approach God like he owes us something. Like, it is our right to be happy, healthy, and wealthy all the time. Like it is our right for God to do this and for God to do that. And church, may we repent of our pride and our arrogance and any sense of entitlement that we've had as we've approached the Lord. But instead, may we, may we have a persistent, humble confidence in approaching the Lord, not because of our goodness, but because of His. So I don't have dude running around my feet anymore, uh, but we do have Joel, our eight-month-old, and he's crawling over like everything at rapid, you know, ever-increasing rates. He just, he gets from end to end of the house. He weaves between chairs or brothers or anything that's like in his way. Uh, and so usually when we're getting ready for dinner, We'll be setting the table. Uh, we'll, we'll be getting the silverware, filling up drinks, things like that. Uh, Joel's usually at that time crawling around the kitchen table, uh, you know, just cleaning up the scraps from the past meal. Uh, he's like our little Roomba, right? He just kind of goes around. And, uh, but then what happens when dinner's ready? What happens when dinner's ready? I pick him up off the ground, and I seat him in his high chair at the table. 
I pick him up, right, because he's not a pet. He is a walker boy. And as a walker boy, he will have and will always have a seat at my table. And he might not realize this now, but all that Britt and I have, all we have is his. It's all his. Now listen, Joel has not done anything to deserve a seat at our table. He up until this point in life has contributed very little to his life or existence or to the Walker family, okay? He cannot claim a seat at the table because of his goodness or because he deserves it. He gets a seat at the table because of the goodness of his parents who have claimed him. And too many Christians, we approach God as if we were the dude, right? We approach God as if we were the dude and that God exists to serve us and do whatever we want him to do. Like he owes us this because we made a decision to follow him. That's how we approach the Lord. But may we rightly approach our good and gracious God as ones who have been lifted up off the ground and seated at the table. Not because of our goodness, not because we've deserved it, but because of the goodness and graciousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one we had no claim on has claimed us. And so may we persistently, humbly, and confidently approach him and enjoy his table all the days of our life.